Alrighty, welcome back um, to our Q&A time. On page 237 of Principles of Life, printed in 1952, there's a cartoon of Jesus as our advocate. We have an advocate, uh, and, and, it, and it had a caption. We have an advocate that will plead for us in heaven if we place our case in him, unquote. Then the uh, questioner writes, uh, dictionary advocate means publicly recommends or supports. Isn't this the most accurate meaning that someone, uh, than, than someone pleading our case? So when you think of advocate, for me, uh, what, what law model, in heaven, do we need someone to plead our case or recommend us? Do we need that in heaven? No. And if we need that in heaven, who do we need that recommendation from? When First John says, I would that you sin not, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Many people read that as we have someone that will plead with the Father to defend us, to advocate for us. But the word with, if I were to say this, we have an advocate with the Father. And is that how you've typically heard it? Well, good, we got a friend with the Father. Is that how you've typically heard it? How about if I said, well, you have cream with your coffee. There's cream with your coffee. You have cream. We have an advocate with the Father. We have cream with our coffee. So does, does cream mean we have... have yeah. So the idea being is we have an advocate along with the Father. And if you put that with Romans chapter 8, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare us some, but gave him up. How will he not along with us give us all things? Who is it that he condemns? Christ Jesus said he's at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding with us in addition to the Father. So this idea of an advocate, yes, we have an advocate. We have the Father we have, and the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 also intercedes for us with, with groans and utterances that we can't understand. So we have an advocate in the Father, we have an advocate in the Son, and we have an advocate in the Holy Spirit. They all advocate for us. And what are they advocating for? They're advocating for us in the sin problem to bring us the solution and persuade us that they are trustworthy and allow us to be healed by them. Uh, so for me, that's the primary purpose. I don't really think that there's a necessary for us. Now, to the degree that Satan makes accusation, as in the book of Job, God advocated and defended Job's reputation before the angels, but you don't have one member of the Godhead advocating to the other member of the Godhead. God pointed out that Satan was wrong about Job. Job was his friend, and he was trustworthy. So in that sense, perhaps there is an element there, but not one member of the Godhead advocating with the other. There are several texts in the Bible about God testing us. I don't understand why. I have never tested my children. He knows how we will respond. Would he test us on something we would fail at? Please elaborate. Uh, so I guess it really depends on how you define the word test. When you use the word test, what do you mean? It sounds to me like the way your question is written, that you're actually um, suggesting some type of a uh, trap to trip them up. Test them where they can fail. You say you never, you never test your children, so you never gave your children any chores to do. <laughs> if, if your children were given chores to do, did you follow up with them? Did you examine whether they did it to a reasonable degree? Was there consequence if they failed to do it? You were testing your children. You were testing their reliability. You were testing their trustworthiness. You were testing whether they would listen and obey. You were testing them to see if they could learn. And you were giving them opportunity to test their own selves, to test their strength, to test their, their capacity for application and uh, development. Um, so testing is not 
um, necessarily something that is viewed in a negative context. Uh, this is why the tree was put in the garden as a test. It was not put there to trip them up. It was put there so that they could weigh the issues and have an opportunity to decide for themselves and choose what they would incorporate into their being, whether it's faithfulness, loyalty, love, trust, and fidelity to God, or would they incorporate into their being fear, selfishness, rebelliousness, deceit into their being? What would they choose to know, good or evil? And they had the freedom to choose whichever they would do. And uh, sadly for all of us, they chose the, the negative. So, um, yes, God, I think, tests us because he wants to give us the opportunity to choose the right and reject the wrong. And that's the only way that we can actually be saved from the sin problem by being one to trust and choosing freely to cooperate with him. In Revelation 16, the seven last plagues are described. The fourth angel in 16.8 is described as pouring out his bowl on the sun, and it's allowed to scorch people with fire. Is this an actual event or purely symbolic? Is it God making the sun scorch people or Satan if it's literal? So I think we just read uh, a quotation uh, just before we got to Q&A time about how these judgments of God come, and it comes from God um no longer restraining or holding at bay. And that's what God's wrath is described in Romans chapter one. And these are the bowls of God's wrath being poured out. And so as, as human beings harden their heart against God, and the human being is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells, as billions and billions permanently harden, the Holy Spirit is slowly withdrawn from the earth, and God's wrath or letting people go is slowly poured out. And as that happens, then um, Satan gets more control, like in the book of Job, and more painful and devastating, devastating things begin to happen over the earth. Now, related to the sun, this is symbolic, I believe, um, but, uh, but it's a future event. We will know to the degree when it happens how literal it is and how symbolic it is. I don't think it's really that important. I think the process of what's happening is important and, that, that, and the methods of God in, in how these things come to, to be, and that is God's Letting go his restraining power, Satan gets more power on the earth, and destructive things begin to happen on the earth. And most of Bible prophecy is not given to us so that we can accurately predict and foretell the future. Jesus said that he foretold the disciples these things so that when it happened, their faith would be increased. So that when these things happen, we can see that God foreknew and he was not taken by surprise and that he was overseeing and directing the plan of salvation for his people all along and that our confidence in him has increased. That's the primary purpose for these things. I just put something together today that I want to run past you. I've always heard people in our church say that the reason the church is not growing is because there is too much sin in the church. Today I was thinking about Christ and how he had one disciple that was a thief and a traitor, uh, two who were known as the sons of thunders, needing anger management, uh, one that was uh, swore like a sailor when asked if he knew Christ, yet um, with all those defects, the movement grew. I'm concluding that these types of sins are not on the are, are not on the pro are not the problem, but the sin of forceful and coercive methods. Am I on the right track here? We are experiencing things at our church that make me consider this possibility. Absolutely. I think that the types of things you describe are the, the struggles of our human and carnal nature that as we walk with Jesus, 
we we grow and mature out of those things. And the sons of thunder were changed. And Peter became loyal and faithful. Judas hardened against it, but the others didn't. And so this is part of the maturing, sanctifying, growing process when we see these human foibles or shortcomings. However, the methods of God we apply in how we treat others or the methods of Satan that we apply in how we treat others go directly to whether God empowers the church to advance. We can't receive the power of God to advance Satan's kingdom. He's not going to do that. So if the church is not advancing or growing, then we should really inquire, are we working against God and working against his methods? Not necessarily working against His doc- the doctrines. We might have the right state of the dead doctrine. We might have the right Sabbath day doctrine. But we might have the wrong methods to seek to employ it. And God, it's really primarily about the methods we employ because that determines the character we develop, not the specific factual doctrines we hold to be true. So I think you're on the right track. How does one explain the Stockholm Syndrome under the understanding of God's design law? How does the syndrome demonstrate its universal constants, especially love and freedom? Stockholm Syndrome is is people who have been taken captive. They're under some type of control and authority. Uh, They fear for their life, and they come to identify with the people who captured them and uh, and, and ultimately uh, are considered brainwashed in a certain way and come to be supportive and protective. Uh, under the under the um, design law, it is by beholding we become changed. They are living under fear. They want the fear to go away. They are, they are not trusting God to the outcome and holding to principles. They're seeking, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, how they can save themselves. And, and the way they save themselves is to move out of the position that is antagonistic to or enemy of the captor into an ally and supporter of the one with power in the captor. And as they ally and support uh, with the captor, then their fear goes down because they're on the captor's side now and not against the captor, and so they feel safer and more secure. By beholding, we become changed. Fear and selfishness seeking to adapt and, and transform the character. Uh, this is what the Stockholm Syndrome is all about. It's driven by fear, selfishness, and, and the drive to survive. And so it is a manifestation of the design laws of God being worked out. And it is destructive to the one who submits to it. So how does it, uh, especially love and freedom? Well, obviously, love and freedom is not working on either side of that equation. You can see that same type of thing in codependent relationships where it's not overt kidnapping and physical abuse. It's it's psychological control and abuse, and a person surrenders to it and eventually become what we describe as a shadow person, identifying with the person, always seeking to please them, to make them happy so that person won't be mad at them. It destroys the, the individuality of the one who surrenders. Doesn't being willing to listen involve obedience? Okay, so you're going to have to go back to the question of what you understand obedience to be. Obedience is a willingness to be corrected and follow where Christ leads, of course. It can it absolutely can, uh, can involve a change in behavior, but it's not about performance. It's about a willingness of the heart to follow and apply the truth to one's life. Uh, that's what it's ultimately about. But the performance may not be very good because we might not be very good at performing. Um, I remember an example Graham Maxwell gave would be um, the uh, the servant whose job it is to open the gate for the master when he hears the master's voice and the master uh, calls to open the gate and immediately the servant jumps up to open but the gate has uh, become stuck and with all his might he can't open it and the master has to get off his horse and put his own weight in it to get the gate open uh the the servant is not disobedient because he can't perform the task that he was because his heart was willing 
And so it's not about actual task performance. It's about the willingness to, to apply what God leads us to do and to the best of our ability carry out those things for sure. So there is certainly performance and behavior involved, but it's not measured by the quality of the performance. It's measured by the quality of the heart attitude toward the performance. Uh, it seems to me that most avenues put Ellen White in a position of infa- most avenues put Ellen White in the position of infallibility. That every single dot and tittle uh, that she wrote at any uh, time in her life was half of perfect status. Was she not human? Did she not have some errors in her own of on her own? in her own view of God? Do we put ourselves in jeopardy of misunderstanding of God if we take the view of some humans not having the ability to be wrong in their understanding um, and view of God? Did not some of the Bible prophets themselves have errors in their actions? Yeah, so this is a great question, and I like where you ended your question. Rather than focus on Ellen White, because I think you're right, there are many people in the Adventist church that have, uh, or and outside the Adventist church, that have complete blind spot when it comes to Ellen White. Inside the Adventist church, there are many that have this infallibility. If Ellen White said it, I believe it. That's all there's to it. And reasoning, thinking, and processing get shut off completely. And then outside the Adventist church, uh, many, uh, uh, because of Adventists who approach it that way, have completely concluded Ellen White is a fraud and uh, and shouldn't be considered in anything she wrote, wrote we should reject. Uh, so Ellen White becomes a hot-button topic for many people. But your ending question is a much better one because it really un- exposes the principle you're talking about. Every single human being other than Jesus is a sinner. And every single human being other than Jesus Christ has made mistakes. Even people that are working under the inspiration of God. Okay, And so we look, for example, at the apostles. After the ascension, after Peter's reconciliation on the beach, after Jesus has recommissioned him to go out and feed his sheep, we find Peter on issues of theology and application to ministry needing to be corrected by Paul because he was wrong about hanging out with uncircumcised fellows, wrong about church fellowship and association. He had errors in his understanding of things that needed corrected. Does that mean he was not inspired? We shouldn't read the books of the Bible that he wrote. Doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Even when you're reading scripture, you have a God-given responsibility to weigh it out for yourself, think it through for yourself, Compare scripture to scripture, consider the deeper meaning, and come to your own conclusion about what it means, uh, who it was written for, what it means, and what application it has to your life. And so uh, I would I would agree that you should never take anything Ellen White wrote without weighing it, comparing it. And Ellen White herself wrote that her writings are subordinate to scripture, and they should all be compared to scripture. And if you ever find anything here writing that contradicts scripture, you should discount that element of her writing and go with the scripture. Uh, so, so at the end of the day, she never claimed infallibility herself. Anybody have a question about that? All right, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your love. And we thank you for the way you run your universe. And we thank you that you are the only infallible in heaven alone. You, Jesus, you, Father, you, Spirit, are the only infallible ones. Every other human being, and even angels, can make mistakes, and a third of them did. We thank you for your infallibility, and we ask that you will lead us to put our trust in you, and not in any human being, but only in the truth 
that comes from you. And we thank you that you've had many friends through the years that have written the truths you've inspired them with, but lead us to understand and appreciate them for ourselves. We pray in your holy name. Amen.